check in, ask any questions about the talks. You know, we purposefully don't put aside time for questions at the end of the talks just to keep the evenings more quiet. But some things might have come up, feel free to ask now. Or any questions about practice, questions about integrating the practice back in your daily life, or whatever seems relevant. And uh, make sure to speak loudly so everyone can hear you if you decide to ask a question. So anything come to mind? Yeah, Sharon. My name is Sharon, and uh, my question is, if you would, again, repeat what the Buddha said about refuge in the heart. I don't know, maybe I'm... (laughs) Our our refuge, where where is the refuge? Refuge really is in our heart. And And this is especially poignant because he was talking very close to the time of his death. And, of course, Ananda and others, uh, understandably so, were wondering (laughs) what are they going to do without their good friend, their good Dharma friend and inspiration. And uh, so the Buddha was saying, well, I'm not appointing a successor. And uh, that you have everything you need. If you see the Dharma, you see the Buddha. If you see the Buddha, you see the Dharma. So he's saying, it's not about me, it's not about my personality or this physical presence. It's about this way of relating, this way of working with our mind, our heart. And, uh, and you know that already. That's already, you know, there are a lot of people who know the way, who know the teachings, the pointing out. And it's just a matter of doing it. And where do we do it? Well, we do it, of course, in our own mind, our own heart. So then... You know, from there, the, of that teaching about the refuges, uh, take, take nobody as a refuge except oneself, be an island, a lamp unto oneself. So these are just similes about understanding that this is where the problem is and this is where the resolution is, right here in the heart, in the mind. One of the Thai uh, forest masters told Ajahn Sumedho once when he was a monk, a relatively new monk in Thailand, and uh, he said something like, there are only two things you need to know, you know, the heart and the activity of the heart, and understand the difference and not confuse the two. And uh, we're, an ordinary human being is somebody who's confusing the heart with the activity of the heart. So the activity is everything that moves, our thoughts move, our emotions move, sights and sounds and smells and touches and tastes, all of that is moving. But there's something that isn't moving. In Buddhism we call that the unconditioned. And that sometimes heart with a capital H or mind with a capital M. Just to distinguish it from the conditioned mind or the conditioned heart, the heart of dispositions or emotional habits or mental patterns that are moving. But there's something that isn't moving. And so this is our refuge. And that's why we have to sit in the middle of these storms, you know, the storm of our swirling physical sensations, the achy knee, the restless body, the memories moving, the thoughts about when is this all going to be done, moving. But there's something that doesn't move in all of that. And that's what we awaken to. At first we just 
have some glimpses or intuition, like a sense that it's something's trustworthy, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. And then just with time, it's not like you can grasp it ever, because then it would be something that comes and goes. But it is something that can be trusted and uh, um, yeah, made a basis for freedom freedom in the world that moves. Just to follow up on that, I remember, I think it was in the second talk, you had sort of a list of characteristics of the refuge. Do you remember this, or am I making this up? Something like it was a, a refuge is something that you feel excited about doing... I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were the Parmetas. Mm-hmm. Could, yeah. Could have been somebody I was reading from. Oh, okay. Yeah, doesn't sound like... Well, you know, there's the 33 synonyms of Nibbana. Was it that, maybe? No? Comes and goes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Anything else? Well, I, I've been curious about karma when you were talking about the four Tibetan four mind-changing mm-hmm. understandings. And so um, I think you said something like, I just uh, don't have enough information about karma, but that it, we don't really need to think about past lives as perhaps not not part of it, but I think that's what I heard you say. But then mm-hmm. I um, remember too that when you were talking about the Buddha talking with a good friend who was a king who was who had much wisdom, and then, mm-hmm. but then you said that later the king's son um, had a coup and, and yeah. did did him in. And then I'm thinking also about you know our situation now where with the, the economics and yeah. all the bankers don't seem to be. Suffering any karma yet, but the people who, you know, were the recipients of their moves are certainly suffering a lot. So, just wondering if you could say a little bit more about karma. And I can tell part of me wants to see the the returns right away. And yeah, <laughs> which is interesting. You know, just how we want to be the karma karmic enforcer. Right. I'd be so satisfied. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's actually a big debate in Buddhist circles, this whole idea of the place of past lives in in terms of understanding karma. And I think uh, it's, you know, my personal opinion, and it's just that, is that it's good to keep a really open mind about past lives and possibly future lives. Um... And it, it does help us understand <coughs> karma, being open to that view, because it does seem that people can lead, lead lives of a lot of greed and don't seem to receive the consequence of their actions. So uh, seeing things in a vast perspective then makes room for whatever goes around comes around her. Um, but... I think what I mentioned is that we don't need to have a conviction, faith in past lives, future lives, to understand karma. But it is helpful. But you don't need that because we can see it acting out immediately, actually. When my mind takes up anger, 
immediately I'm suffering because of that identification with anger. So there's like, I don't have to wait to see if my anger sows seeds that then later come and haunt me and then people hate me or something like that. And that also helps us understand the bankers too, or whoever we imagine is making mistakes out of ignorance, out of misperception, and uh, acting on greed or fear. And uh, even though they may be unconscious of their suffering, and even though externally they may have a lot of rewards for their so-called bad behavior, we know from our own experience that when we're living from a narrow place, like even the narrow place where you don't matter, I matter, you know, just me and my family is what really matters, that that's a very narrow view to live in. And that's a su- it's suffering, just to be in that narrow view, to be disconnected, and to be able to not care. We think it's like hard to care, but it's actually hard not to care. It's just it's such our, so much our habit, we don't realize how stressful it is not to care about all things. Yeah. Yeah, Rob. Um, can you talk a little bit about enlightenment? You were talking about last night. Is, you know, having faith, you know, that um, eventually someday you'll be enlightened. But versus the view that enlightenment happens every sit, every time you let go, every time you relax into the present moment. So. <laughs> I'm laughing because I just... Was perusing an article yesterday by Tani Sarobiku, and one of his agendas recently seems to have been correcting all of our mistaken views about the Buddhist teachings, and in, in particular about mindfulness being equated with freedom, and uh, or equated with enlightenment. And I think the important thing is that all of these instructions are skillful means. So when somebody says a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom, what I think what the invitation is, is to notice that when the mind is mindful, it's not suffering due to distraction, right? Because the mind is remembering to be present, to show up, and it's not experiencing the stress of being disconnected. But it's not the same... I think we have to be careful assuming that that freedom is the same as the experience of the mind of a Buddha or the mind of a fully awakened person. Because we don't know, I don't know that experience, the mind of a fully awakened person. And uh, and it, it just keeps us open. So this is, the, this is our predicament where we get, we do directly experience freedom. We know something, everybody here knows something about freedom in the same sense that we know something about a contracted state of mind. Because we're moving between relatively contracted and relatively uncontracted states all day long. And so we know that movement toward freedom. But it's uh, the thing we need humility about is what we don't know is we don't know how the heart is still being held. And it's like, you know, that classic example of you can be in the kitchen doing your thing and then the fridge stops humming and it's a relief. But a moment ago we didn't realize that the mind was irritated by the vibration of the refrigerator. And in the same way, we don't know how many subtle layers of self, of fear, of greed 
are still active in the mind. But what we do know is every time a layer is dropped, there's this experience of release and of opening. And so, you know, as often uh, teachers say, the work is done when there's nothing left to let go of or nothing left to go beyond. When the... uh, even when the mind is fully released, like in a time of a deeper state of concentration, and there's just not much ego activity going on, not much of the mind turning things into this and that and good and bad, the mind is really still and silent. Even there, I'm not sure I always detect it, but the mind on some level understands that this is a temporary thing, that the mind is still capable of getting attached, capable of being aversive, greedy. And even though it's not happening now, that's stress. Just knowing that the peace is temporary and not permanent. So, I think uh, just to have a really vast view, I've had experiences, you know, where people who seem to have some insight, you know, they'll come to me talking about their practice, And they'll make these claims about, you know, first stage of enlightenment, second stage of enlightenment, fourth stage of enlightenment, you know, full awakening. And uh, I don't know. I mean, and I know that I don't know. But I have a a sense that there's a a lack of appreciation about all the ways the mind holds (laughs) and the pervasiveness of that habit. But that doesn't mean we don't experience real moments of freedom. And they may be relatively deep, but it still may be a temporary freedom, and that's stressful. The fact that that it's that it's uh, yeah that the the seeds of seeing the world in a dualistic fashion are still there. So there's this great line from Shanul, the the I think he was a monk, Buddhist monk, who brought uh, Zen Chan Buddhism to Korea back you know, long ago, eight, nine hundred years ago, and he said, uh, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So there are moments of sudden awakening, of, uh, of a sense of real freedom, real release, and then there's sort of that imprint of the mind, of the experience of freedom. So the mind's contracted, and then it realizes a release from that contraction. And then that integration is generalizing that experience of release, and sort of that imprint, that memory of release, in a sense, is showing up all the places where the mind still gets contracted, still takes things personally. And, uh, and then bringing mindfulness, opening to those places, understanding how, it's, how that experience of contraction is coming to be, how it can be released, you know, the Four Noble Truths practice. Seeing dukkha, its cause, and its release, its cessation. Oh, yeah, man. Um, with the uh, refrigerator analogy, <clears throat> and a, a little bit, I mean, there's many parts to practice, including uh, sila. And uh, thinking about Sayadaw Utejaniya's uh, 
discussion you read from his book, Dhamma, yesterday morning, and I don't remember the exact quote, but something like, you know, with practice, one is happier, or life is easier, or something like that. I guess, uh, what I feel like my experience is, often, not always, I feel like I occasionally might get a taste of relaxation or something like that, but that my awareness of the refrigerator running uh, seems like it's really active right now. Like I feel a lot of irritation. I feel this <laughs> burden of a of a of an insecure self that's uh, just sort of uneasy, worried, or fearful, or anxious. So um, I guess I, try, I was kind of looking for uh, how to put. Uh, you know, if maybe that's an indication rather than feeling more peace, or if it could be an indication, oh, I'm, I'm more aware of, of the unease or disease that's uh, present in my life, relative to, to uh, Sayadaw's comment. Yeah, and I think in that situation where we're feeling a lot of disease, I mean, one of the advantages of being on a retreat where we become more sensitive, and it's like the hum just is louder, not because it's louder, not because the insecurity is louder, but because you're just more sensitive, right? One of the real advantages of it is that it uh, it can't be ignored. The suffering of insecurity can't be ignored because of the sensitivity that the mind has generated being in a relatively simple environment, following the practice of returning to the present moment over and over again. And we just become profoundly sensitive. And then these patterns of insecurity, these patterns of overthinking everything, the patterns of, you know, you know, whatever our personality pattern might be, they just stand out, and it feels oppressive. But if we hang in there, sort of aware of how oppressive it is, this division or this uh, realization, really, of this activity of insecurity and the awareness of it, and just really playing that, like there's this very real movement in the heart, mind, body, of which you're calling insecurity, but any of us could find some other label for what it is for us. There's that, and then there's the awareness of it. Then the awareness isn't insecure. There's, so there's the heart and the movement of the heart. And really working at the developing that understanding. This is something that's already true. And when the mind, in a sense, is caught, when the silent space essence of the mind is identified with the movement, then we are that movement. We are painfully suffering the effects of insecurity because we've, you know, the mind has become that in a sense. But that's just because of the lack of seeing things as they are. The mind, the space of now, whatever you want to call it, Buddha nature, isn't affected by what comes and goes, including, uh, you know, deep, dark personality patterns. That's not the problem. The problem is the mind's identification with it. And that's that, you know, the two ox and the yoke. It's, we have to remember it isn't the, what we're seeing, like the insecurity, and isn't the fact that we're sensitive and seeing the insecurity. The problem is that the mind identifying or getting caught up in that experience, not seeing the difference between the mind 
and the movement of the mind. So I would just keep, and, and being grateful that it's like really big and clear, because then it's like it creates the right incentives to sort of, in a sense, you know, it's not quite, quite right, to step back and to know that that feeling of insecurity is being known. Like I was going to make this example last night about how, you know, we'll get a teaching from somebody and we'll use it, you know, we'll be inspired enough by the teaching to use it and it will verify our faith. And one thing Joseph Goldstein was doing a lot, uh, I think it was my, yeah, it was my, yeah, it was my first retreat, a uh, long three-month retreat, and, and uh, I was interviewing with him, I don't know, once or twice a week, and he would say things like, uh, you know, just keep, you know, whatever is predominant, whatever is arising in your field of experience, just blank is being known. This is being known. And then every once in a while he'd, he'd say, known by what? Instruct me, you know, known by what? And to do that, to kind of, just to sort of catch the mind off guard and so to more quickly see the empty space that's knowing the insecurity. And to see that, once that's realized, then everything else is not a problem. It's the lack of that refuge in the unconditioned that makes everything a problem. If it's good, it's a problem because we think we need it. If it's bad, it's a problem because we think we need to get rid of it. Because the mind is always taking personally all the stuff that's coming and going. So we have to... And in a way, it's, it is the last thing the ego will do. It will be willing to suffer for a long time. But eventually, when we're so clear about the suffering, the ego is willing to see whether that's possible, to just fall back into space, you know, into empty knowing. And to really see that that position, in a sense, that refuge in the unconditioned, works. I mean, it's really practical. It eliminates suffering from the mind. It eliminates any friction the mind is having with the different conditions that are coming and going immediately. I found that really helpful. Thank you. Anything in context of noticing greater ease, happiness, um, that Ajahn uh, or that uh, Saida Utejaniya offered that. less disease or more disease, but, I mean, I'm okay. It's just... Yeah, Matt, I think what it might be, Matt, is that, uh, that uh, we, I think it's hard for us to understand what happiness is. Like, we have, you, I think you should really notice the happiness of seeing more clearly, even though you're feeling more pain, in a sense, but like, because there are a lot of people who are what we would call not seeing clearly, and they, their hearts, their minds might be very bound up, and no light, you know, no understanding of why. But you could ask them, and they'd say they're doing fine. So this is a thing about suffering. Suffering isn't dependent on whether someone's conscious of it or not. People can be deeply suffering and not be conscious of it. And to be more conscious of our suffering doesn't mean we're suffering more. 
but it can be confusing. And I'm wondering if that's sort of what you're, you're kind of wondering about. It's like you're so much more aware. So how can you see the advantages of that and uh, really appreciate the space that allows you to be so sensitive, so aware of what's going on? And it's like uh, how protecting that sensitivity is, as painful as it is. It's really protecting you. It feels oppressive, like when you have a teacher who's like right on your back or something like that, or a good friend or good friends that are right on your back, not letting you sort of deviate from kind of your agreements. And that's how that pain is. When we really see how suffering works, how greed and aversion work, the wisdom that understands it can feel oppressive. But, you know, we actually need that strict parent, that wisdom operating in the mind. But it's really, uh, it's really intense at times. Yeah, Casey. Um, so I don't seem to um, be able to articulate a lot of my own experience for myself. Um, in some ways it's like I'm uh, uh, just going by feeling, uh, going by intuition, or, or just sensing into things, leaning into things, opening up to things. Uh, <clears throat> it's probably a lot different than maybe your experience has been, I'm not sure, but uh, when you talk about um, the heart and then the activity of the heart, um, there's something with that that makes great sense to me and then uh, when I reflected back on uh, my experience or I guess what I'm calling myself experiencing um, and then there's a part of it that that just doesn't make sense at all to me and you know, maybe none of this will ever make any sense at all, and that's maybe just fine, but um, seeing as how that when things do make sense to me, it seems to be helpful. <laughs> I'd like to make more sense of this, and, and uh, with that all said, um, you know, when you said to Matt, like, what he was experiencing is insecurity, all of us might experience as our own. We might have another name for it another story for it, or another eye for it. And to me, it, it seems like that activity of the heart it's like, how, how can that be separate from the heart? Like, um... But what makes you think it's separate from the heart? Maybe just the way that you're explaining it, or the way that I'm hearing you explain it. Like, um, when you say there's the heart, you know, like this stillness or emptiness or unconditional heart, and then there's the activity of the heart, which is, as I'm understanding it, just everything that we could name, in a sense. Right. But where does that activity happen? That's amazing, yeah. 
Yeah. So I think it's it. I wouldn't try to understand it. <laughs> and uh, and people who who have a facility for explaining things to themselves and others, maybe there's some advantages, but certainly there are disadvantages too. So I wouldn't worry about explaining it. I just make sure that you trust your intuitive sense of suffering and release. And that's really, as long as you feel that that's high, uh, highly honed, then I wouldn't worry about anything else. Um, yeah. And I don't think it's appropriate to think of them as separate. That would be a mistaken view. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, um, just a observation, comment on the enlightenment discussion. I, over the past few years, um, read from a number of teachers, and it seems like a big cosmic joke, but uh, they all seem to be saying the same thing, that enlightenment can happen, just not going to happen to you. <laughs> yeah. But what it really means is when you show up, your ego shows up. It's not possible. Yeah. So, in other words, you got to let that fade into the background. It's still going to be there, but you got to let it fade and let it chatter in the background. But and this is why it's not the only way, but why there's in, Buddha, in the way the Buddha teaches, there's such an emphasis on understanding, being intimate with dukkha, because it's it's the direct experiencing of dukkha and the natu- the ego's natural desire to be free of it that allows for this opening to happen, and uh, it's a move that the ego mind. It's like because it's death for that, for the activity of the mind, the, the part of the activity of the mind that thinks it's it. And uh, so it's, it's, it's going to happen suddenly or surprisingly or carefully understanding, experiencing dukkha and wanting out. Wanting out regardless of the cost. Maybe time for one more. Yeah, Cass. In the practice group I was in, and maybe my fellow practitioners could could say it more correctly than I can, but you mentioned seven something. Could you mention what they are? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there a movie Seven Brothers for Seven Sisters? Or? <laughs> seven wives. Seven wives for seven brothers, yeah. Um, no, it's the seven factors of awakening, I think, I was talking about. It's one of those lists of beautiful qualities that we can bring to mind in order to better appreciate, like to have faith that this heart, mind, is capable of expressing beautiful qualities. So there's mindfulness, and then there's three energizing and three tranquilizing qualities. The three energizing, there's investigation, energy, and rapture. And the tranquilizing, tranquility, concentration, stillness, and equanimity. And so those are the seven factors of awakening. And if one wanted to, to find out more about them, what would you suggest, where would you suggest going? Well, there's, there's a lot online, thankfully. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, go to Access to Insight and uh, just put that in. 
Bojanga is the Bojanga is the Pali word for it. And you'll you know if you start trying to type that out, you'll you'll get it. And or the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment. And there will be several suttas where the Buddha talks about it, but also I think there's a couple booklets where people have sort of talked about it. They're often, like it's in the Satipatthana Sutta as opposed to the hindrances. So often we're abandoning the hindrances and we're cultivating the seven factors. And when the seven factors are in balance, insight is inevitable, the mind inclines towards Nibbana. So it really, it's the way the Buddha described the balanced mind that opens to the truth of things in terms of the seven factors of awakening. And it's, he talks about it in balance, about balance in terms of like a, a perfection, but like, and it's, you know, with something that's in balance, it's easy for it to be slightly off. And then we get a sense of the uh, kind of delicate nature of learning how to bring the mind to balance, how to maintain the mind's balance. So it's not disturbed by what comes and goes. So we'll leave it here. We have 30 minutes for walking. Uh, I'm asking the people that have interviews to help me stay on time because I have to leave right after the last interview. And I'll say goodbyes. It's been really nice being here with everyone. I'm always so touched being on retreat together. And just, uh, I know it's a challenging practice. It's a beautiful practice. I feel it in my own experience practicing and I'm just very happy that people, other people are also really interested in the practice and are willing to do these retreats together. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, it, it wouldn't happen if we had to do it alone. So mm-hmm. it's really good that we can do it together. So enjoy the rest of the retreat and your Thank you. birth as social beings. <laughs> <laughs>